Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 563 with Ozan Barul. Ozan is sharing how you can think like a rocket scientist. He knows he was one and how that really matters for accelerating your career, taking it to the moon, if you will, or Mars. Somewhere real fast, real far is the metaphor I'm going with. Zero and one, how success can hinder growth and what you should do about it. Two, how to turn worrying into productive preparation. And three, how rocket scientists see and use failure. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to albums we've referenced, you can expand this show's episode notes or description in your podcast app player or visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash app. That's EP563. And you'll see those goods right there. Now here's Ozan's story. Ozan Barul is a rocket scientist turned award-winning professor and author. He served on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project and later pivoted and became a law professor. He's the author of Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps and Work in Life. The book is number one on Adam Grant's list of top 20 books of 2020. And it's been named a must-read by Susan Cain, an endlessly fascinating by Daniel Pink and Bursting with Practical Insights by Adam Grant. Big thanks to Ozan for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member finra sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Ozan. Ozan, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Pete. It's a delight to be here. Oh, well, I'm delighted to dig into this. I really like thinking about thinking, so this should be a rich conversation. Uh, to kick us off, could you maybe share with us an a interesting behind-the-scenes story from your days working on the Mars Exploration Rovers? Sure. One of the stories that immediately popped to mind, it was my... First few months of working on the project, so this was back in 1999, and I'm serving on the operations team for the project, and that year was a particularly bad year for NASA for a number of reasons, but one story that I have in mind involves this spacecraft called the Mars Polar Lander, and that year, the lander was supposed to land on Mars, but unfortunately, it crashed. The landing system failed. And now this wasn't our baby, but we were planning to use the exact same landing mechanism on our rover. Ah. And, and of course, our mission understandably was put on hold because this, what we thought was a safe way of landing on Mars had just failed spectacularly. 
And so we were scrambling to find solutions and, and figure out a, a safe way of actually landing us on Mars. And I remember distinctly, the uh, my boss, who was the principal investigator for the mission, walked into my office one day and he said, I just got off the phone with the administrator of NASA and he asked me a really simple question. He said, can we send two rovers instead of one? Mm. Now, up until that point, NASA had been sending one rover to Mars every two years. So that was the default. And this question was, it was such a simple question, but one that none of us had thought about asking before. And of course, you know, we were going to fix the, the landing system, but the NASA administrator reframed the problem because the problem wasn't just this defective landing mechanism. Even if you fix that, there are so many things that can go wrong when you're sending this delicate robot 40 million miles through outer space and, you know, crossing your fingers that it lands safely on the on the Martian surface. So instead of putting all of our eggs in one spacecraft's basket and mm -hmm. hoping that nothing bad happens along the way, we decided to send two rovers instead of one. And I'm, I'm so glad we did for a number of reasons. One, with economies of scale, the second rover ended up costing just pennies on the dollar. But on top of that, double the rovers meant double the science. They landed yeah. on two very different parts of the planet. And we built these things to last for 90 days. They were named Spirit and Opportunity. Spirit lasted for about six years. And Opportunity, and um, I still get goosebumps when I say this, but it lasted 14 years into its 90-day mission just because someone there to step back and reframe the problem and see just the obvious insight that was hiding before everybody else's nose. Well, that's really fun. And as you were telling this story, I was thinking of, I think it's from the movie Contact with Jodie Foster, where they uh, they say, well, why buy one when you can have two for twice the price? That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. <laughs> but it wasn't twice the price. You said it was much more cost effective because you right. know what you're doing and you're exactly. moving. And, and it seems like that's cool. Like like the learnings, I, I guess, is that the idea is, is we, you did the second one lasted so much longer because you you learn some things and you fine tune some things after doing the first or you just got a little more lucky? Yeah, not necessarily. I think we just got lucky, right? Okay. We had two shots on goal. One ended up being six years and then the other one just ended up lasting for 14 because we were able to send it to a different location on Mars where the geographical conditions, the weather conditions were different. Okay. Well, that was a fun story. Thank you. Well, so we're going to talk about your book here uh, about thinking like a rocket scientist. First off, could you frame up the why for us? So I'm uh, thinking about professionals in particular, you know, those with jobs and who want to be awesome at them. Why should we think like rocket scientists? What kind of benefits do we get? Or, or, or what about the, the landscape of work these days makes that a, a beneficial approach? Sure. The world is evolving at a dizzying speed, and we all encounter these really complex and unfamiliar problems in our lives. And those people who can tackle those problems with no clear guidelines and with the clock ticking enjoy an extraordinary advantage, regardless of, of what field you're in. And so the book isn't about the science behind rocket science, uh, so I'm not going to try to teach you the theory of relativity. More, it's, it's about taking these frameworks, ways of looking at the world, processes of thinking from rocket science, and then walking you through how you can employ them in your own life to make your own giant leaps. One of the biggest conceptions about rocket science is that it's celebrated as the triumph of technology, but it's really not. It's the triumph of the humans behind the technology and this thought process that they used to turn the seemingly impossible into the possible. I mean, it was the same thought process that allowed Neil Armstrong to take a giant leap for mankind. It's the same thought process that we used when we worked on the Mars Exploration Rovers mission to send these rovers 40 million miles across outer space and land them exactly where we 
wanted. And it's the same thought process that's bringing us closer and closer to colonizing other planets. Unfortunately, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to think like one. And one of the things I've done with my life after I worked on the Mars Rovers Project and, and left, I pivoted and became a lawyer and then a law professor, and now I'm an author and speaker, is to take these principles from rocket science and not only employ them in my own life to very different fields, but also teach others how to employ them as well and how to think like a rocket scientist. And the book is a, is a culmination of really a lifelong journey for me. Oh, cool. Well, so I am intrigued. You laid out, hey, these are really cool results we got when you follow a thought process. So that's great. I'd like to have awesome problem-solving innovation abilities for sure. Could you maybe give us a cool story in terms of, of yourself, someone they were thinking non-rocket scientist-y. <laughs> they did something a little bit different with how they were thinking, and then they saw a cool result. Could you give us a, a case study or a before-after tale that brings it together? Sure. The one example I that popped to mind that I talk about in the book is Alinea, which is the three-star Michelin oh, restaurant yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, right. it's an amazing place. And one of the things that they've mastered is thinking like a rocket scientist, I kid you not, across, across very different ways. So one is, even when Alinea was at its height in terms of the accolades, that they had won basically every award that one could have imagined. And they were bringing in a ton of profit they decided to take a sledgehammer to themselves. So at the very top of their game, they said, we're successful now. We're about to get complacent. It's a fend off complacency. We're going to tear the place down and start over again. And to get rid of the assumptions and the outdated thinking that's cluttering the way that we're running our business. And so they created Alinea 2.0, which has also been massively successful. One of the other things that they do, so that refers to a principle from rocket science, from physics really, called first principles thinking, which is a way of looking at a system and distilling it down to its fundamental, non-negotiable components. Everything else is negotiable. So you hack through these assumptions as if you're hacking through a jungle with a machete to get at the, the original raw materials and building it back up from there. Uh, so when you apply that thinking, you go from being a say a cover band that plays somebody else's songs to an original artist that does the painstaking work of of creating something new and so alinea did that with alinea 2.0 one of the other things they did is in the beginning they would look at dishes and say what can we add you know what ingredients can we add what new spice can we try what new cooking methodology can we try now they're asking a question that rocket scientists ask which is what can i remove what can we take away how do we get to the fundamental components of this dish to bring out their best as opposed to adding and adding and adding, which not only creates complexity, it can increase problems, but it can also take away from, from the taste of the dish as well. And that's a question that rocket scientists have to ask themselves and have to contend with on a, on a daily basis because, you know, you run into constraints when you're building a rover in terms of weight, in terms of space. Then the best way to, this is a quote I love from Anthony Gaudi, the famous Catalan architect, but he said, originality consists of returning to the origin. And I, I keep that quote in mind really throughout my life and, and ask myself, how do I get back to the first principles, to the origin and build something up from there? Because that's how creativity results. Well, that's really rich and uh, boy, a lot to unpack there. And, and so when you come to say the fundamentals in, that, in a restaurant business, for instance, I, I think it sounds like from the very ground level, you might say, okay, we need delicious food people love. 
Right. We need an ambiance that is enjoyable. Could you share with us what, what are some of the noteworthy things that they they ended up removing that, that made a world of difference? We say tore it down. I actually am not familiar, even though I live in Chicago. <laughs> Did they literally <laughs> like demolish or sell the space? They and, and literally demolished the one? space. Okay. They literally demolished the space, <laughs> literally demolished the menu, which sounds really well astonishing in so many ways. Like, why take something that's successful and then destroy it and build it back up from scratch? But the founders of Alinea knew something that most of us neglect, which is that success tends to breed complacency. So when you've been successful at something, what most companies do is they look at the rearview mirror and keep doing what they did yesterday. Now, that can work in the short term, but it's a recipe for long-term disaster. If you don't disrupt yourself in some fashion, then others will do it for you. And one practical way to implement that mindset, because not everyone is going to be able to take a sledgehammer to their business the way Alinea did, is to apply this exercise called Kill the Company. And the mastermind of the exercise is, is an author named Lisa Bodell. And I first read about it. In, oh, yeah, we had her on the show. Oh, great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. First read about the exercise in Adam Grant's The Originals, the book. And the exercise was conducted by, so Lisa working with Merck and Merck's CEO is Kenneth Frazier. And he wanted to bring more innovation to work. Now to Merck, most CEOs ask the same questions. Like what is the next big thing? Or how do we think outside the box? Those questions have become cliche which means that people are using the same ways of thinking, the same neural pathways, essentially, to try to get at novel answers, but the answers don't end up being novel because they're just taking the same thinking that they used yesterday and applying it. And so the exercise, basically, the way it ran at Merck, Kenneth Fraser asked his executives to play the role of a competitor seeking to destroy Merck. So this is called the Mm -hmm. Kill the Company exercise. Their goal was to put Merck out of business. And the executives played that role for an entire day and came up with ways to put Merck out of business. And then they switched perspectives and went back to being Merck executives. And the exercise was successful. So this is sort of a metaphorical way of taking a sledgehammer to your company, not an actual one. Mm -hmm. But the exercise was successful because we're often too close to our weaknesses to evaluate them objectively. It's like trying to psychoanalyze yourself. But when you step outside the box and actually look at the box from the perspective of a competitor seeking to destroy it, then you end up identifying problems that you may have initially missed because you're looking at it from a completely different perspective. And you don't have to be a business to be able to apply this mindset, by the way. I mean, you can ask yourself, why might my boss pass me up for a promotion? Mm -hmm. Or why may I not get this job that I'm applying for? And then switch perspectives and figure out ways to prevent the potential threats that you identify. Oh, that that is excellent. And I think that's really the most constructive, productive way to worry (laughs) that, that you can do that you can do as opposed to just ruminating like, oh no, all these bad things could happen. Totally. You get proactive. And and I like that for prepping for presentations in terms of saying, okay, what is the question I fear most? Like Mm. if they're going to ask me something that's going to make me look like an idiot because I don't know and I'm not prepared, like what is that question? And then, oh, I'm going to go find the answer and the appropriate response and approach for that. And then we had a guest talking about uh, what he called red team thinking when, right. in, in the military terms, like, hey, if this whole mission goes south and it's a mess, like, how will it have gone south? Like, what would be the cause of it? And that kind of gives them some, some heads up about doing it. And, and it's so great because I think in a way our brains are very adapted coming up with 
dangers and risks and things to fear if we go there. Yeah. And I want to highlight two things you said, Pete. One is the idea of actually not ruminating about these worst case scenarios. There is something really powerful about writing them down. Because one, when you let them sort of ruminate in your head, they tend to get worse and worse. And writing them down, putting them down actually takes their power away, uh, in my experience, at least. And, and then you can look at them objectively and actually come up with strategies to fend off some of those worst case scenarios as opposed to just letting them sit in your head and get stronger and stronger. And then the second thing, which you mentioned with respect to your preparation strategy for presentations where you think about like the worst case scenario or what what could go wrong, that relates to one of the other principles I talk about in the book from Rocket Science, which people can apply in their own lives, called test as you fly, fly as you test. And the principle is really simple. So rockets and rocket components are tested on Earth before they're flown in space. And the goal in rocket science is to make the test as similar as possible to the flight. And in some cases, worse than the flight. Because if you find the breaking point of a component here on Earth, that means, well, you break the component on Earth where it's going to cause far less damage than it will in, in space. But many of us don't apply that principle in our own lives. So when we do practices or tests or experiments, they tend to be wildly disconnected from reality. So if you're preparing for a presentation, most people will practice their presentation in front of their spouse while they're wearing sweatpants in a very comfortable known setting. But if you're applying the test as you fly rule, you'd be practicing your presentation in front of strangers who are ready to throw curveballs at you and maybe drink a few espressos before the presentation to give you the types of jitters that you're going to actually experience in, in practice. Same thing with job interviews as well. The way that most people do it is they give a set of questions to their significant other or friend and ask them to run through this predetermined list. But that's mm -hmm. so different from an actual job interview. So the goal should be to bring the test, the experiment, as close as possible to the flight. Yeah, I like that. Well, so we've gone through a few of these strategies. The book has nine. Can you share another one or two that you think can make a world of difference for professionals trying to be awesome at their jobs? Sure. One is the idea of proving ourselves wrong. So... Our goal in life, the way that most humans operate, is to try to prove ourselves right, to try to confirm what we actually know. But progress, whether in science or in life, occurs only through generating negative outcomes. So by trying to rebut rather than confirm our beliefs. So, you know, try this for a week. Switch your default from proving yourself right to proving yourself wrong. So when your focus shifts to proving yourself wrong, you end up seeking different inputs. You open yourself up to competing facts and, and arguments. And the point, by the way, of proving yourself wrong isn't to feel good. It's to make sure that your spacecraft doesn't crash or your business doesn't fall apart or your health doesn't break down. In the end, the goal should be to find what's right rather than, than to be right. And I give a couple of examples in the book about how you can apply that that way of thinking in your life. Another strategy or principle that comes to mind is a rebuttal or a riff on this mantra that's so popular in Silicon Valley these days, which is the idea of fail fast, fail often, fail forward. So countless business books tell entrepreneurs to embrace failure. There are now conferences like FailCon dedicated mm -hmm. to celebrating failure where thousands of people get together and, and share their failures. I believe you have a podcast about sharing failures. Yeah, I do. Exactly. <laughs> totally. And, uh, and Silicon Valley companies are actually now holding funerals for failed startups, complete with bagpipes and DJs and, and, and liquor flowing freely. 
And yeah, and I do have a podcast on on failure, but the goal I think shouldn't be to celebrate failure, but it should be to actually learn from it. So if I could change the mantra, and this is one of the things I talk about in the book, from fail fast, I would change it to learn fast. And this is something I stress in my own podcast as well and trying to get people to share not only what they failed at or how they failed, but what they learned from that failure. Just because you're failing doesn't mean that that you're learning anything. And research bears this out. I cite a number of studies in the book, one involving cardiac surgeons, for example. A study shows that cardiac surgeons who botch a procedure actually perform worse on future procedures mm. because they don't learn from their mistakes. That's a bummer. Yeah, because what happens is, you know, when you fail, people instinctively to feel good about themselves, they blame the failure on external factors. They say, well, I got unlucky or we didn't have enough cash flow if you're an entrepreneur. They'll come up with some external reason for why we failed as opposed to looking at internal ones, the mistakes that we made, the bad calls we made, the bad decisions we made. And so the goal should be, and this is the goal in science, of course, is not to fail fast, but to learn fast. Because all breakthroughs in life and work are evolutionary. They're not revolutionary. People do things wrong. So Einstein's first seven proofs for E equals MC squared failed. Mm -hmm. But he learned from each failure and applied it. Thomas Edison famously said, uh, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. We have an obsession with grand openings in society, but the the opening doesn't have to be grand as long as the finale is. And, And the way to make the finale grand is not to fail fast, but to learn from each failure. Okay, lovely. So then I'd also love to get your view on when we, next time we encounter a a challenge that just seems tricky, puzzlesome, immovable, (laughs) what's sort of like the the first thing you do, like the stop, drop, and roll, or the key questions you ask yourself, or or the the protocol, like, uh, here we are, this sounds tough, don't know how we're going to make that happen, go. Sure. A couple things. The first is goes back to the story I told about that simple question. What if we sent two rovers instead of one? First, ask yourself if you're tackling the right problem. Because often when we get a challenge or a problem, we immediately jump into answer mode. So answers seem really efficient, right? I want to come up with a quick answer to this thorny problem. But when you jump into answer mode, we often end up chasing the wrong problem. So the first question is to ask, am I solving the right problem? Are there better problems that I could solve? Can I reframe this problem in a way that's going to generate a better answer? So that's strategy number one. And then after you've done that, break down the problem into its smallest subcomponents. So think about a challenge that you're facing and say, you know, you want to get somewhere to an audacious goal in a year or two and apply a principle called backcasting, which I talk about in the book, which is work backward from that desired outcome. And this is sort of the flip side of what we talked about before, Pete, in terms of imagining the worst case scenario and working back from it. But working back from a desired outcome also works really well. Work back Mm -hmm. from what you want to achieve and identify all the steps you need to get there. Because when you look at this, and I experienced this writing, (laughs) this book that's uh, that's coming out this week, when this episode will be released, is when you look at this blank Word document with like 80,000 words to go, it's really, really intimidating. But if you can take that big thorny problem and break it down to its smallest subcomponents through backcasting, then... Each step isn't as intimidating. You know, I can certainly today, for example, write 
subsection A of chapter one. But if my to-do just says write book, that's really daunting. And that's, this is one of the reasons why people procrastinate. And so identifying actionable steps is really important, not only because it's motivating, but it also gives you some sense of progress. So you can look back and say, yeah, this is what I accomplished today. And it also has the benefit of pivoting your focus away from the outcome to the actual process. So we tend to, when we're trying to achieve something, really hone in on the outcome, but forget about the process that it actually takes to get there. And so, for example, if you want to write a book, most people sort of fall in love with the idea of, of writing a book and they want to have written a book, but not actually go through the writing process because it can be painful at times. So doing this backcasting is also a good reality check because it makes you focus on the things that you're going to have to do to get to that to that desired outcome. And final strategy is after you outline these steps, so you reframe the problem, found a better problem to solve, you applied backcasting and created some steps of getting there, I would suggest tackling the hardest thing first, the thorniest part of the project. Because if that thorny part ends up being insurmountable for some reason, you want to know that up front as opposed to a year from now or two years from now. Yeah, I really like that. I talk a lot about hypothesis-driven thinking and that there's some some overlap here when I'm working with aspiring strategy consultants or, or just teams that want to work better together in, in my training courses and such. And I think that is one of the, the best ways to prioritize. You know, sometimes you might want to start with something that you can sort of confirm or deny very quickly in terms of like, right. hey, all right, well, so we can... We could save a lot of time, but that gets to the same core. It's like you're tackling the thing that's kind of like the highest risk right. in terms of let's let's get our answer on the highest risk matter, and then we can move forward. And so when we talk about, you know, think like a, I don't know, a, a consultant or like a rocket scientist or like a lawyer. And I think maybe I think about political scientists is have sort of a whole nother way of running their brain I've seen. And then maybe like designers. Mm -hmm, sure. I think of these as very different domains and maybe there's a book in here somewhere. But how would you sort of contrast sort of like the fundamental maybe priorities and principles of how a rocket scientist thinks differently than say a lawyer or a political scientist or a management consultant? I think there are a couple of key differences because a lot of the, actually all of the principles I outlined in the book come from the sciences and a lot of them take a sort of a grander scale in rocket science because of the stakes involved. I mean, in none of these fields you mentioned, whether it's politics or law, or political science or law or designers, I mean, in, in some cases, I guess human lives are going to be at, at, at risk, but the scale involved in rocket science is so massive. With each time you fire a rocket, hundreds of millions of dollars, and for human spaceflight, lives are at risk. And so all of these principles take on heightened meaning when you're talking about rocket science. And a lot of the principles, again, come from, from the scientific field. So for example, I don't really see lawyers, I'm a law professor, that's my day job, I don't really see lawyers think about this, but the idea of, in science, nothing is proven right. 
it's simply proven not wrong. Only when scientists you know, beat the crap out of their own ideas and fail to disprove them can they begin to develop some some confidence in them. And I actually, that's something I rarely see in the legal field, for example. The very best lawyers that I've seen apply that thinking to some extent of actually trying to get to know the opposition's argument better than the opposition does. But it's not something that's talked about because it hasn't completely crossed over from, from the sciences into, into the legal field. And again, many of the other principles like test as you fly, for example, I've also really not heard of outside of rocket science. And there might be some crossover, of course, but because the scales are so massive in rocket science, you have to build in all of these contingencies and ways of thinking in a way that that you may not need to when you're writing, say, an academic article on political science or drafting a, a brief for, for a legal case. Well, Ozan, I'm actually very surprised by that response. I, I, I thought you would say, oh, sure, yes, but the legal community, as I'm a professor, I, I see overlap <laughs> there. And in a way, I'm a little disappointed if I shell out over 300 bucks an hour for a big law associate, not a partner, an associate. <laughs> I'm not getting these uh, thinking tools at my disposal. That's Kind of disappointing. Well, if you get one of my students, then sure. All right. <laughs> because I try to I try to get them to apply that rocket science mindset to law every day. But, you know, it works for some people and doesn't work for others. All right. Well, well thank you. Tell me, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No. I think we're, we're all set with the book. All right. Well, you gave us one quote. Is that your favorite or do you have another favorite quote to share? No, you know, the, the quote from Antony Gaudi is really my favorite. Another one that I think about often is, is a quote from Warren Buffett, where he says, we get fearful when others get greedy, and we get greedy when others get fearful. And mm -hmm. I, I tend to think about that in my own life and, and ask, when I see a lot of people doing something, and, and ask myself, how can I do the opposite of that? Or what can I do to do the reverse? Yeah. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? It's about this, the study of college students. They, the experimenters placed these college students in a room. They removed all of their belongings. And so they left the participants on their own. And they told them to spend time with their thoughts for 15 minutes. That's it, just 15 minutes. Now, there is also a, a twist to this. If they wanted, instead of you know, sitting there bored for 15 minutes, the students could self-administer an electric shock by pressing a button. <laughs> so you've got two options. You can either get bored or you can shock yourself. In the study, 67% of men and 25% of women chose to shock mm. themselves instead of sitting undisturbed with their thoughts. And there was one person who delivered 190 shocks to himself during the 15-minute the period. And I think that's a really shocking thought. And it's because Boredom is becoming somewhat of an endangered state. And that's a dangerous development because boredom is so central to creating new insights. I give a number of examples of this in the book, but creative ideas arrive during these moments of slack, not hard labor. But many of us are too busy moving from one email to the next, one meeting to the next, one notification to the next, that we don't build in those periods of boredom in our lives. And as a result, our creativity suffers. Thank you. I'm most intrigued by the gender difference, actually. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah. mm -hmm. what's that about? <laughs> right. <laughs> and how about a favorite book? It's called Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress by Christopher Ryan. And his argument is really simple, and I think backed by really compelling evidence. He says that there is a serious mismatch between our genetic makeup and the modern conditions of Western civilization. 
who are essentially apes dressed in suits, eating a diet, and living a lifestyle just wildly out of touch for how our bodies and minds were constructed. And he offers some some ways of, of adjusting our lifestyle to, to better match our genetic disposition. It was a really fun read. And how about a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? One thing that I just signed up actually over the past month and I've been obsessed with it is called, it's called Readwise. And you can access it at readwise.io. It hooks up to your... Instapaper, so that's the app I use to like save articles and read them later, along with your Kindle accounts, and it will sync highlights and it will send you like random and you can you can pick the number anywhere from I think five to fifteen highlights every day. And so you open your email in the morning and you know these are highlights from a book that you may have read three years ago or four years ago. And I tend to be a I read books in, in paperback or hardcover, and there's a way of typing your notes or importing your notes into Readwise as well. It's really cool because sometimes I'll read a book three years ago and I'll just completely forget about it. And having this system in place where you get an email with these random things that you highlighted from the book is a really good way to help retention. So I'll remember things and then I'll end up using, say, a research study in a book that I had read five years ago and I just completely forgotten about. I'm really loving that tool. Oh, cool. And how about a favorite habit? goes back to boredom, but I've become very intentional about creating boredom in my life. And one way I do that is I sit in the sauna for 20 minutes. I try to do this every day with nothing but just a notebook and a pen, just to jot down thoughts that might occur to me. But some of the best ideas I've had in, in recent memory have come to me in that stifling, solitary environment of the sauna. Doesn't the paper get wet? It does, it does, <laughs> but I can still read what I wrote. So that's all that matters. Okay, and, and how about a particular nugget, something you are known for, you share, and people quote it back to you frequently? First thing that jumped to mind is it can be harder for you to survive your own success than to survive your failure. And it goes back to something we talked about earlier in the conversation, Pete, about how success breeds complacency. And I give the examples in the book of the the Challenger and Columbia disasters of, you know, two really tragic disasters that were preventable, but NASA got complacent with its with its own success. And I talk more about that in the book and, and share ways that, that people can use to, to fend off complacency and to identify these small stealth failures that tend to get concealed when we win because the instinct when we win is to celebrate, not to look back at what may have gone wrong. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I have a weekly email that goes out to over 19,000 people called The Weekly Contrarian, and you can sign up for that at weeklycontrarian.com. And then my book is Think Like a Rocket Scientist. It's available wherever books are sold. And you can find all the purchase links at rocketsciencebook.com. And I do have a special offer for the listeners of your podcast, Pete. If people order the book by, let's say, the end of April, I'll give them a special bonus of... 10 three-minute videos from the book with just action-packed insights, so practical strategies from the book that people can apply in their lives right away. And so if you order the book and and forward your receipt to rocket at ozanbarol.com, that's O-Z-A-N-B as in Victor, A-R-O-L.com, you'll get, and just mention that you heard about me on this podcast and you'll get that video bonus. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Question the default. Instead of operating an autopilot and taking your assumptions, your habits, your processes for granted, 
take time every now and then to hang a question mark at the end of them and ask yourself, do I own my assumptions or do my assumptions own me? And just remember the research study in, uh, about how employees at call service centers tend to perform better if they use browsers that don't come as the default. So if they use, for example, Chrome, when the default browser is, is Safari, and it's not because using Chrome makes, magically makes you a, a better worker, but it's because someone who questions the default when it comes to the browser choice also applies the same mindset to other areas of their jobs. Ozan, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck with the book and your adventures. Thanks so much, Pete. I love that tip about writing down your ruminations, your worries. It makes all the difference. You convert the worrying process into a masterful preparation process. And in a way, you really take good advantage of that kind of worrisome emotion and capacity to imagine all these terrible worst case scenarios. When you're writing it down, it suddenly becomes... I guess fuel, uh, keeping the rocket uh, rocket scientist metaphor going, it becomes fuel for more great ideas because they can build off each other. Ooh, that's worrisome. That could be really bad. What else could be really bad? Oh, that could be really bad. What else? And then you can just write a big old list and then you're on your way to preparing in, in great, quick order. So great reminder from Ozan. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F563. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest, It is Marco Greenberg. He's talking about the primitive drives, motivations that get the high-performing folk fired up. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 